You're listening to the WChat Podcast with Drs. Nicole Lowe and Stephanie Edmonds, and this is episode 15, Prenatal Drug Use and Abuse with Dr. Kaylin Klee. and welcome to WChat. Today we're interviewing Dr. Kaylin Klee regarding her work with addiction medicine, specifically prenatal substance use and abuse. Dr. Klee came highly recommended to us from a former resident student and had very high accolades about her communication style and all the work that she is doing. So we are very excited to talk to Dr. Klee today. And this is also an area that Stephanie and I don't really have a lot of experience in. So it's also becomes a really fun learning experience for us. For this episode, all notes will be available on our Patreon page. Just go to www.patreon.com slash WCH. So to get started, Kaylin, we like to just get a little bit of background about our guests, like where you went to school and what type of patients you serve. Sure. And thank you so much for having me. So I started, actually, I came to medicine as a career change. So I uh, went into undergrad thinking that I would go into medicine and then quickly became very interested in psychology and sociology and ended up doing a master's in marriage and family therapy and working in marriage and family therapy for a bit and then returned to my first plan of going to medical school. When I went to medical school, I thought I would go into psychiatry because that my background in mental health had made me really interested in people with all kinds of different mental health concerns. But I found that like a lot of us who go to medical school, there are so many things that I had no idea I would be interested in until I was there. And for me, that became family medicine. So I completed medical school at Rush Medical College in Chicago and then came out to Colorado to do a family medicine residency at the University of Colorado. And then interestingly, in primary care, found that many of the patients I was most interested in working with had some kind of mental health concern, but specifically a substance use concern of some kind. And I felt very strongly that I was not completely equipped uh, in the way I wanted to be coming out of an excellent primary care residency training program to really care for my patients in the primary care setting with a substance use disorder. And as luck would have it, the University of Colorado started an addiction medicine fellowship the year after I graduated from residency. And so I was actually the first addiction medicine fellow at the University of Colorado, where I still work. My interest in primary care and in addiction medicine has come to settle really on taking care of pregnant women and mothering women with substance use disorders. And so now my practice focuses on perinatal addiction care. So I have two clinics that I was able to start where we provide a wide range of services, but focus mostly on prenatal and postpartum care for pregnant and mothering women with some kind of substance concern. Uh, Now this can include women who come in seeking treatment, who really want some kind of treatment for their substance use disorder. And this also includes women who are pregnant who have ongoing substance use and are not quite ready for some kind of formalized treatment. And so we feel really strongly in my clinics that I've been able to work in that we provide prenatal care and we provide medical care to people 
not assuming that they have to or not wanting to have patients feel the assumption that we'll only take care of them if they seek treatment and enter into sobriety. And so we get to really see people all along the spectrum of active use, of contemplation, and then into sobriety and long-term recovery. Great. Thank you. So another question we like to ask all our guests is what informs your perspective or your practice? So why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? So this is kind of a good question that has given me some time to think about. I think probably my treatment philosophy or my practice philosophy comes out of my time that I spent in the therapeutic world and the concept of unconditional positive regard. So no matter what is happening or my personal feelings about a per- my patient's choices or not choices, that I can offer them a positive experience of receiving health care in a non-judgmental and non stigmatizing way. I feel really strongly, particularly as we are working through this national opioid epidemic, that the healthcare setting needs to really take ownership of our part and realize that many people are suffering now due to iatrogenic substance use. So substance use concerns that were caused by the way that they received care from prescriptions or things like that, or the way we treated their pain. And so I feel really strongly that we, that I not only want to have patients have a positive experience of receiving health care, no matter their level of active use or, or sobriety or recovery, but I feel really passionate about trying to right some wrongs and taking ownership as a healthcare provider of some of the ways that healthcare has hurt patients over time. And if I can be part of helping to heal that relationship between patients and providers, then that's a really important place to start and actually can lead to better health. And so when patients feel welcome and like their healthcare provider likes them and thinks about them positively, patients are more willing to come in and receive medical care. And when providers like their patients and think about their patients positively, we're more likely to provide good medical care. And so I think that, you know, this doesn't have to be necessarily I would love to take this person out to lunch type, you know, friendly relationship with all of our patients. That's not realistic. But it can be for me, very important to really try to keep some positive view in my mind of my patient so that I can take care of them in the way that I would want myself or uh, my own loved one to be cared for if the roles were reversed. I love the phrase you used, unconditional positive regard. I really like that. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way to approach humans. And so, (laughs) you know, thinking about is there something positive that I can find about this person, even this person who, you know, maybe I wouldn't choose to be friends with or have a close relationship with or for whom actually I find something really offensive about them, right? I mean, I think it's just a matter of time in healthcare before a patient or a provider runs into somebody that just rubs them the wrong way. Right. But we can still take care of our patients by approaching them with a positive view and then keeping in mind that there's nothing this person could do that would turn me off to them so much that I would change the way I want them to be cared for. Now, of course, if patients become abusive or threatening or things like that, of course, there's clear safety lines and there should be. But I'm talking more about kind of just on the personal level of keeping in mind that 
when we think about people positively, sometimes they really can surprise us and meet an expectation of having more positive behavior, more positive investment in their own health care. Well, I can already see why your students love you and why your oh. patients love you. And I definitely thinking from the perspective of the population you work with, pregnant women who with substance use and abuse, this is a very stigmatized population. And for you to have this perspective of there is positivity in everybody and can find it, even when I think that there's probably a lot of providers who, if they were in your shoes, would be like, I don't know how to provide care or would struggle to find or, you know, maybe have more of a challenge finding that positivity. So I think this is already incredible. Oh, well, thank you. And it's kind of amazing how many patients that I do take care of. You're right. I mean, people with substance use disorders are stigmatized in the healthcare setting frequently. And then pregnant women who use substances are an even more kind of specially stigmatized subgroup of that population. And I know there are many of my patients who have what I would consider to be one form or another of a healthcare associated trauma. And so really having been traumatized when they've attempted to seek health care in the past. And so it makes many people even less willing to seek health care because of those negative experiences. And that can happen with anyone, with their primary care provider, with their dentist, with an emergency room provider, with EMS, they've ever had to call 911. And so sometimes it's important for me just to address that right off the bat with my patients and ask, have you ever had an interaction or an experience receiving health care that you think was different or made worse by you having a history of a substance use disorder? And I've never had a patient say no to that question. Almost every patient can tell me a story about a way they were treated differently or mistreated just because of that history of substance use. I think that's interesting that you take the time to ask that question too. It's really helpful for me to know sometimes because if I'm getting a feeling from my patient that they're very guarded or wary of me and not certain what to think, sometimes just finding out that backstory can be really helpful and give me an opportunity to do something differently. You know, if my patient tells me, oh, well, I really didn't like it when my provider would talk over me well, then I need to be even more careful to not interrupt or talk over that person so that we can work on our new relationship and hopefully give my patient a, a more positive experience of receiving health care. I'd like to ask a question related to what you just said. So you're kind of already getting into some communication tips. How exactly do you ask that question about healthcare related trauma history with your patient? And then how do you respond to that? Yeah, usually I'll start with a statement saying, you know, many of my patients tell me that they are nervous about getting health care or coming to see the doctor because they've had some kind of experience, typically a negative experience, receiving health care when the person who was going to treat them knew that they had a history of substance use. So a classic example is my patient who came into the emergency room and had an abscess on their arm. From, in, from injection substance use. And typically when we're going to open an abscess, we numb it, right? We provide numbing medication to decrease the pain, but their abscess was opened without any numbing medication. And this patient really felt clearly that that happened because they were a person who injects drugs, that there was this 
kind of disregard for their basic human comfort. And they never went back. So they were supposed to go back and get their dressing changed. And they didn't go back. And they ended up with a really severe blood infection because they didn't want to go back to the same place and get health care. And in fact, they didn't want to come in at all. They ended up coming in unconscious when their friend called 911 after their infection had spread. Oh, wow. You know, and so knowing that kind of information, right, is so helpful right off the bat. And I never ask for names. I say, you know, I'm not asking for you to badmouth someone in particular or a hospital in particular, but I want to know what your experience has been like receiving healthcare so that if there's an opportunity for me to do something different, then I want to do that proactively. And then when people tell me these stories, I feel even if it wasn't me that took care of them, right, I think it's important for me to apologize. And so I'll typically say, you know, I'm really sorry that you had that experience trying to be healthy and trying to get health care. And it feels important for me to apologize on behalf of the healthcare community because I do feel so strongly a responsibility to provide health care to people, particularly who have developed a substance use problem uh, because of something that they were prescribed or their pain was treated or, or things like that. So communication wise, what would you say is the most common, and I'm not really sure how to word this, but the most common trauma that they experience on behalf of healthcare providers, as far as, you know, was it something said to them? I mean, the, with the not using numbing, that was obviously an action. Is there other just things that are said to patients that cause the trauma or can cause the healthcare related trauma? I don't know if it's even, I mean, I'm sure that there sometimes are clear verbal statements made, but most people just describe to me a feeling that they get of being judged. And so this perception that the person who is trying to take care of them and give them health care finds them repulsive or offensive in some way because of their history of substance use. And then the other thing that most, so sometimes it can be just a feeling, right? Patients will describe, it was just a feeling I got that I was not welcomed or that they didn't want to be taking care of me. Sometimes it is very explicit verbal comments or for my pregnant patients, many women who I take care of have had the experience of seeking prenatal care, but then when their substance use was discovered, were told explicitly, we don't take care of people like you here. Right. So this idea that if you use substances while you're pregnant, you're not welcome to come to this clinic because we don't take care of pregnant women who use substances. And so sometimes it can be very explicit. And sometimes, you know, my patient with the abscess that was treated without numbing medication, that's a very kind of dramatic example. But I would say the most common experience is just this feeling of being stigmatized or judged. So related to that, in general, this is a highly stigmatized group or behavior that is using drugs while being pregnant. How do you refrain from judgment? And what do you say to those who do judge their behavior? Yeah, I try to keep in mind, and this was part of the really interesting experience of becoming a mother myself while taking care of these moms, was the very disappointing experience that when I became pregnant and became a parent, I was just myself. (laughs) And I wasn't some new, highly evolved, more patient 
more kind version of myself, that I was just myself now with a child, good, bad, and ugly. And so I often will say to my patients and to others, when we're talking about taking care of women with substance use, you know, that really the only thing pregnancy has ever cured is infertility, (laughs) right? So the rest of us just have to get pregnant and become parents with all of our chronic concerns in play. So whether that's depression, whether that's overeating, whether that's whatever behavior or condition about ourselves that we don't like or that we feel bad about. I wish pregnancy was the cure for substance use disorder, but it just isn't, right? And pregnancy can be a great motivator for many people to want to make behavior change. You know, the pregnant woman herself, maybe her partner, her family, you know, a pregnancy and the potential for a new life is a high motivator to make positive change, but it can never take the place of treatment. And so it would be like for me when someone says to me, well, if she really cared about her baby, she would stop using. And to me, that is the same as saying to someone, well, if she really cared about her baby, she would stop having diabetes, right? If she could, she would have, and she would have done that right away. And so most women who are using substances in pregnancy, it's not for lack of desire to change. Most of us strongly desire to become this healthier, better version of ourselves when we're pregnant and parenting. But women who are using substances in pregnancy are using them because they can't stop on their own and they need help. They need help to stop and make that change. And so and so do many of us, right, with behavior changes that we're trying to make in pregnancy or not. And so I think when we think of it that way, that really this is a behavior, you know, the substance use is a behavior that if this person could have already changed on their own, they already would have. And when we approach people that way, realizing, wow, this person's probably already tried several things to change their behavior and they can't yet, then it hopefully puts us into a more helpful mind frame of, well, what can I do to help them make that change? You know, if they really have a desire to change their use, is there a way for me to be helpful to them in achieving that goal? You had previously mentioned that women can kind of fall into two different groups, that some become pregnant and they want to stop using, they're motivated to stop. And then you also simultaneously treat women who are still actively using while being pregnant. Can you talk about how you assess where pregnant women are in their substance use and desire for recovery? And then how do you tailor your communication depending on where they are? Sure. I think really it's no magic. It's more, you know, I really take the approach of respectful curiosity. And so I want to, I'm curious about my patient and her experience and where she's at. And then using kind of basic motivational interviewing, motivational enhancement type conversation to see where is this person? Do they continue to use because they just perceive that they cannot change, right? And they don't know that maybe there could be a treatment available to them or a help available to them that could help them to make a change if they wanted to. Many people do want to make a change. When I talk with people in active substance use and I say, do you plan to still use in this way six months from now, two years from now, 10 years from now, what do you see in your future? Many people will tell me, oh no, I would, I can't imagine doing this. You know, I don't want to do this forever. Or I would plan or hope that at some point I would stop or or get sober, but it can feel overwhelming and impossible to do that maybe at that moment. 
it is amazing to me under the, the circumstances under which many people do still get sober and stay sober. And when we think about kind of toxic stress, right, homelessness, poverty, racism, all kinds of different layers of stress that many of my patients are facing, even under some of those great stressors, people still successfully enter treatment and want to uh, continue in their recovery process. But if they don't, or they're not ready, right? Then for me, the worst thing I could do would be say, oh, well, you can't come and get prenatal care until you're ready to accept my recommendation for treatment. The other thing to keep in mind is that many people really should be receiving a treatment that's not accessible to them. So it is very rare for people to be able to access residential level treatment, right? Where you go and live in a place and receive this kind of very intensive level of care. But many state Medicaid programs, many private insurances do not pay for that level of treatment. And so sometimes it's we're making a compromise right from the get-go just because of what might be available or not available to us. So I might want to recommend to somebody, you know, I really wish you could go to residential treatment, but that may not be financially doable. When insurance doesn't pay for residential treatment, then people are left to pay out of pocket. And so maybe what we can get coverage for would be an outpatient type of treatment. And so there's kind of compromises to be made all around, maybe compromising on what my recommendation would be for the patient combined with what they are willing or wanting to do at that time. And then maybe the other compromise is what can we actually access as far as services. When people don't want, when my patients don't necessarily want my recommendation about treatment or substance use for their substance use, then we can really move into a natural partner, which is harm reduction. And so harm reduction means helping prevent harm coming to a patient who is in active use. And so this could include things like referring my patient to a syringe access program, right, to have access to sterile injection supplies. In communities that have them, although they're pretty rare in the U.S., it could also include something like a supervised injection facility, right? So we're trying to reduce the harms that come to people, infectious disease, skin and soft tissue infections, overdose and death that could happen to somebody while they're in their active use. But just because someone is in active use doesn't mean that they deserve to have those things happen to them, right? So people don't deserve to get hepatitis C when we can prevent it. And so it can definitely move into that harm reduction sphere. The other thing that's harm reduction and good practice is to continue to provide routine prenatal care. Women who are using substances in pregnancy, even women who are in active use, still care very much about the health of their baby and their pregnancy. And really, there's a significant benefit to getting routine prenatal care, even if women don't get totally sober. And so there was a very lovely study done in the 1970s and 80s. And the groups that were compared were women who use substances, who either got treatment or got no treatment, continued in active use, versus women who, with substance use, who either got prenatal care or did not get prenatal care. And then women with no substance use who got prenatal care or didn't get prenatal care. And what this study found was that even if women did not get sober, if they didn't change anything about their substance use during their pregnancy, but they received routine prenatal care, the risks that we typically associate with substance use, such as miscarriage, preterm labor, and low birth weight, were significantly reduced. 
And so there's a benefit to receiving prenatal care that is measurable and powerful, even if somebody's not ready to engage in a substance treatment program. I'm just absorbing all of this. This is so interesting. (laughs) And like you said, or, you know, I approach this as myself, you know, being a new mom and having a baby, it's a lot to like catalog and I feel like work out and you have just appears to just have managed to work that all out beautifully. You know, it would be really lovely if getting pregnant and becoming a parent had just like changed me in some profound way that allowed me to get rid of my common (laughs) problems. (laughs) I think we have this kind of idealized societal image of pregnancy and that women should love being pregnant and that they should somehow morph into their true self when they become pregnant. Stop being just a plain human being. And I wish that that happened. I wish that pregnancy made us some higher or more evolved version of ourselves, but it just doesn't. And in fact, for most of us, I think being pregnant and parenting, we then find, nope, it's just still me with less sleep. And, you know, less time for self-care. And so it becomes this really interesting expectation that we place on women in general, not just women with substance use. I mean, I think we're in agreement to, you know, we're kind of viewing this topic from my perspective through a distinctly feminist lens. But when we think about this idea of femininity and that women should love pregnancy and love being a mother, and it's just not realistic for everyone. And it's not everyone's highest desire to have a pregnancy or become a parent. And I think we put so much pressure on pregnant women that none of us can really attain this image we have set for ourselves. And so for my pregnant women with substance use, they feel very far from this idealized image of what it means to be a pregnant woman or what it means to be a mother. That kind of brings up a question in my mind, just because my interest is in unintended pregnancy. Because I think on top of motherhood changing you, I think that a lot of people expect you to have the certain motherhood health behaviors before you even try to get pregnant. So in the case of substance abuse, that's very much not true. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your patients who are addicted to substances, what you know about their intentions to get pregnant? For pregnancy. The data that we have about this population suggests that overwhelmingly most pregnancies are unintended among women who are pregnant and using substances. Part of that is that many women who I take care of did not believe that they could become pregnant. It's not uncommon for women to stop having their period when they're in active use, especially with opiates or alcohol or methamphetamine or cocaine, that these substances, either the substance themselves or the resultant decrease in nutritional status, or weight loss, or just the the stress of the environment and lifestyle that goes along with ongoing substance use, many women stop having their period altogether. And so they don't think that they could become pregnant and are kind of lacking the information that you could definitely still become pregnant even if you're not having a regular menstrual cycle. But the other thing that I think is underlying that, so there's kind of that biologic piece, right, of I didn't know I could become pregnant. But the other piece that is really interesting to me is this sense of agency. And so for many of my patients, pregnancy is something that happened to them instead of something that they conceptualized as 
a thing that I could plan and control. And so we're doing some work with looking at how do women with substance use disorder think about kind of their reproductive health in general, right? And it seems like that's a theme that comes out. That many women think, wow, I, I didn't realize that I had as much of a say or I had as much control or I could have as much control over my reproduction and my sexual health as maybe I could. Maybe I do have that power. So there's probably more complexity than that. And I'm, I learn more and more all the time from my patients what's kind of going on in their mind and in their life around becoming pregnant. But the vast majority of my patients' pregnancies were unintended and And we need to understand a little bit more about what that is. Is it perceived lack of access to contraception? Is it this kind of deeper feeling of lack of self-efficacy or lack of agency that I can make decisions for myself regarding my reproductive or sexual health? And so there's more to know about that question and, and that idea for sure. So a lot of your patients, you believe got pregnant unintentionally. How do you sort of go from there with your patients who are using substances then to empower them to have healthy pregnancies and then healthy lives? Yeah, I think empowerment is an interesting idea. So there's nothing I have that I give to someone to give them power, right? Their empowerment comes from within and within themselves. And I think that that's something really important that I like to talk about with my patients that you have this power and this this self-efficacy and this strength within yourself. It's not something I need to give to you because you're somehow deficient. But helping people could be even in very small ways, having some success, right, with goal setting and achieving a goal. And so for some of my patients, maybe a goal would be, I want to go from smoking 10 cigarettes a day to eight cigarettes a day. And then we meet that goal and we celebrate it. Right. And so kind of building this sense that you we can decide together on a goal and I can support you while you make this change. But all the power and the hard work is coming from within you and you actually have the things you need within yourself. It can get very paternalistic very quickly when we're talking about a population of patients who have been traditionally, and I'm thinking in the healthcare setting, but also in the substance treatment world historically, kind of told what to do to get sober. And so an extreme example of this would be how a lot of my patients interact with the criminal justice system. And so for example, last year, a county in Montana that released a kind of mandate that if any pregnant woman was using substances in their county, she was to be arrested and incarcerated because if she couldn't stop using substances, by gosh, we're going to make her stop. Right. And so it can get very paternalistic and very controlling. And I really want to fight against that, even when I feel that impulse within myself. Right. Of course, there are times where I want to say to my patient, you need to do this and you need to do this. And I want you to do this. And why won't you take my suggestions? But I don't think many of my patients need any more experiences of being disempowered. And so even when it it requires me to have significant restraint, I want my patients to be able to make a decision for themselves 
even if it's not the decision I would make for them. And now, of course, if it's something clearly dangerous or harmful to them, then I want to address that and make sure that we talk about it. But it is harmful in some way to say to people, you must do this, you have to go to treatment, or you have to take this medicine, because it doesn't give people the kind of corrective emotional experience of making a decision for themselves. And so that's how I feel in my care for taking care of pregnant women that of course, I want to help people access treatment when they decide that they want it. But I won't force it. And I think that if I tried to force it, I could actually end up doing harm. So I think you bring up a good point when you're talking about the mandate out of Montana is, you know, I feel like you really come from a very obviously like a woman centered approach. And when you have these mandates and policies, it sounds more of a baby centered approach. And likely their argument is that, well, someone needs to advocate for the health of the baby. We have to protect the baby. So how do you talk to people or how do you frame that discussion when people say, this is to help the baby. We have to save the baby. It's about the baby. Right. This is a very sticky conversation, right? And depending on what we're talking about, people feel differently. And so, for example, I have a patient who was, for one reason or another, denied us a desired termination, but then was also trying, you know, there was also an attempt to charge her with child endangerment because of her substance use and pregnancy. And so it gets very interesting. I want to be sensitive to the health of a fetus and the health of a baby. Absolutely. But I can't think about a baby or a fetus as an independent entity without considering what's good for their mom right? And what's good for the health of this woman. I think sometimes like the Montana example, sometimes this moves women from being autonomous beings themselves to being a vessel for a pregnancy. And so we have to be really clear that just because a person is pregnant does not remove their autonomy and they still have the right to make decisions for themselves. When we're thinking about substance use, right? The person, it's a really critical to keep in mind that even if it doesn't seem like it at first glance, there will never be anyone more concerned about the health and well-being of that fetus and child than the pregnant woman who is carrying it, right? And so the woman is actually, when we frame her as, you know, this person is actually probably the most concerned about the health of her pregnancy and is concerned in a way that is not knowable to me necessarily because I'm outside of her and this dyad's experience. And so when I'm talking with people about how do we balance autonomy for a woman against safety for a fetus or baby, I think it's really important to be clear about what we're talking about. You know, and are we talking about some kind of law or policy or mandate that is very infant or fetus focused? And does this discount or do harm to the pregnant woman? And that when we try to separate babies from mothers, it tends to not go well, right? As far as baking policies, as far as providing healthcare, there's a lot more interest, I think, now in this area in treatment of substance use disorders in being more family-centered and being more dyad-centered. And so filtering every policy or recommendation or legislation through, does this benefit everyone involved? Does this benefit the dyad, a mother-infant dyad? Does this benefit the family? And if it doesn't, then is there a way that we can rework the goal of our change or the goal of our policy to help support everyone involved? And I think that's really, hopefully, where this kind of area 
of healthcare is moving. As we move away from saying, well, I treat the baby and you treat the mom, I'm encouraged by more collaborative work that's happening around the country between prenatal care providers, substance use providers, pediatricians, family doctors, to kind of all come to the table together and say, we should be working together as a unit, not in separate silos. Could you talk a little bit more about any laws related to pregnancy and substance use as far as you mentioned the law in Montana about pregnant women using substances? Are there other laws similar to that in other places in the country? Yeah, so there are. It varies quite a bit state by state. The Guttmacher Institute, and it's G-U-T-T-M-A-C-H-E-R.org, has a lot of good information about substance use in pregnancy and the laws that vary state to state. And so it is very different state to state. Um, And I think that's probably one of the most important things to keep in mind is that really where people are geographically makes quite a bit of difference with how substance use in pregnancy is viewed. There was a law in Tennessee that is now sunsetted that women could be charged with a criminal act if they had substance use in pregnancy. But the Guttmacher Institute has a really nice kind of breakdown about is substance use during pregnancy considered, as it is in many states, child abuse? There are still three states, I believe, where substance use during pregnancy is considered grounds for civil commitment, right? So you could actually be committed against your will. And then there are other kind of state-specific laws around fetal assault and admissibility of toxicology testing for prosecution of a pregnant woman. So for example, in Colorado, we have a house bill that protects pregnant women from criminal charges if there's and using their substance use in pregnancy or testing that was done as part of their treatment, like a urine toxicology test. It protects that information from being used against her. And it's really important for folks to know kind of locally what their state laws are around substance use because they're more punitive types of laws on the books than probably most people are aware of. And almost everyone in the healthcare setting who takes care of these women, so the American Academy of Family Medicine, the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, everyone is in agreement that punitive measures are harmful and that we really should be moving away from punitive laws and mandates and things like that. Because what ends up happening is if I know, for example, that I could be arrested for disclosing my use in my pregnancy, I am much less likely to want to be on anyone's radar, right? So I'm less likely to access healthcare. I'm less likely to access prenatal care, less likely to access other supportive services like TANF or food stamps or housing, right? Because I don't want anyone to discover the substance use and have a legal consequence for that. And so we really see these punitive measures as a deterrent for women in receiving adequate and appropriate health care. And so any way that we can work towards kind of removing these punitive measures and working more towards supportive access to treatment measures, it tends to go better. And you start to see moms really receiving better care. 
So you had mentioned one resource at being the Guttmacher Institute. Are there any other resources that are available to care providers to help patients like yours? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the first places that many people would start, especially if people who are providing prenatal care, would be several of the committee opinions that have been published by ACOG around substance use, screening for substance use in pregnancy, the use of ESPERT, which is the screening brief intervention and referral to treatment model for substance use, and then supportive policy statements and committee opinions about recommendations for treatment. And so when we're talking about women in pregnancy who use opioids, for example, there is consensus across the bodies that be, so including the World Health Organization and the CDC and ACOG and the American Academy of Pediatricians, that women should receive medication-assisted treatment. And so this can include methadone or buprenorphine, and that should be prioritized. So women should be encouraged to seek these evidence-based treatments, and the providers should be encouraging those as well, and really supporting women in accessing the most evidence-based and gold standard of care. So I would start with the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists. They have several lovely resources. And then the other is SAMHSA. So the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a plethora of resources related to pregnant women with substance use and particularly more recently has published a clinical guide for caring for pregnant women with opioid use. Thank you. Can I just ask one question related to the laws? Mm Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how healthcare providers intersect with these laws? Like, are there states where providers are having to report women? Like, are there mandatory reporting laws or how does mandatory reporting intersect with providing healthcare to these women? Sure. Yeah. So that also varies state to state. So many women actually who end up with some kind of punitive or legal concern, that's not happening because of being reported by their OBGYN, for instance. Many people who use substances have an interaction with the criminal justice system at some point. And so although a large number of my patients do have ongoing either, you know, an incarceration or probation, or there's some other kind of legal concern that they have that happens to overlap with their pregnancy, usually those kinds of charges are coming out of either a previous legal charge, and now there's a new charge because of their pregnancy. So for example, maybe someone has a possession charge, and then their use in pregnancy is discovered. And so that turns into a different charge. But most of the time, it's not. And I would not recommend that prenatal care providers are reporting their patients to police or anything like that. Most people, and especially women who have some kind of legal charge related to substance use, it is very, very, very infrequently a violent charge, violent crime, and more often is lower level, small quantity possession, probation violations, failure to appear in court, like these kind of lower level crimes, if you will, or charges that kind of pile up over time. 
And so I'm not advocating reporting our patients to the police when they disclose substance use. However, there can be some charges that come through involvement with health and human services, such as child protective services. And so in that same kind of graphic, that table that I referenced before on the Guttmacher website, it does also talk about when drug use is diagnosed, which states require reporting and which states require testing. And testing is different. Testing means, you know, some kind of biological sample to confirm the presence of a substance. And that, again, varies by state. So 24 states in the U.S. plus Washington, D.C. require some kind of reporting about substance use, but a much smaller number require testing. Okay. So, Kaylin, in a previous episodes, we've heard about this concept of trauma-informed care. And I believe that when we talked on the phone that you had also brought up trauma-informed care. And I was just wondering, can you talk about trauma-informed care and how it is pertinent to your population? Absolutely. So definitely pertinent to my population. We know that women, not necessarily pregnant women, but women with a history of substance use disorder often have rates of previous trauma. So either childhood, physical, emotional, sexual abuse or neglect or history of let's say, intimate partner violence at rates much higher than a general population of women. And so when we're talking about women in pregnancy with substance use, the chance that my patient has suffered and survived or has an ongoing trauma experience is very high. Some studies report rates up to two-thirds of women in pregnancy with a substance use concern having a history of significant trauma, meaning intimate partner violence, sexual assault, or childhood abuse. And so when we talk about trauma-informed care, really, this has become increasingly important to me because I think that there is some hesitancy to think about trauma-informed care when I talk with providers because they misinterpret that to mean trauma-focused care, right? So trauma-focused care would be actually a person receiving some kind of treatment specifically for that trauma. Whereas trauma-informed care means providing the care that we can provide, so for me, prenatal care, right, health care, in a way that recognizes and responds to a person's potential history of trauma in a way to actively try to prevent or avoid re-traumatization. And for women in pregnancy, this is critically important. So if you think about the types of physical exams that many people have in pregnancy, right, these are very intimate physical exams like pap smears and pelvic exams. People are touching your abdomen. When women deliver their babies, often people are touching or looking at your breasts to try to help with breastfeeding or address a concern. And so the types of physical exams that are involved in perinatal health care are particularly sensitive and really stressful for women who may be survivors of abuse. So a good example is a patient of mine who was avoiding coming to prenatal care. And she had missed several appointments, you know, scheduled appointments, missed it, scheduled, rescheduled, missed it. And I finally was able to connect with her in clinic. And she came into a visit and she was very anxious right off the bat. 
And I asked her, what are you the most concerned about today? What's bothering you the most? And she said, I was told at my first prenatal visit that I need to have a pap smear during pregnancy. And the last pap smear I had was so terrifying that I've been thinking about that every visit. When I try to come in for a prenatal care visit, I'm so terrified that this is going to have to be the time that I have a pap smear again, that I just can't make myself walk in the door. And so we can see how providing trauma-sensitive and trauma-informed care could be critical to helping people actually engage right in their health care when they perceive that they could have a voice and they could have a say in what type of health care and what type of physical exam they receive. And so I'm interested in not only trauma-informed physical exams and physical health care, but also how can we make pregnancy and labor and delivery care more tolerable and less traumatic for people. And I think there's some really exciting changes that we could make that would make the whole experience of receiving healthcare around pregnancy much less likely to re-traumatize our patients or at least prevent them from being able to heal. And so really trauma-informed care can be something that many of us can start working on no matter where we are. And so maybe the first thing is just kind of looking at the physical space. Is the exam room set up in a way that your patient can easily move if they need to? For example, many of my patients feel very stressed if the way the exam room is set up, they are blocked from accessing the door or seeing the door. Right. Many people with trauma tell me that they feel more comfortable if they can sit with their back against a firm surface. And so really helping create the physical space to make people as comfortable as possible. So you had mentioned that it's estimated that possibly two-thirds of women who are using or have used and are pregnant have experienced some sort of trauma. Is that something that you ask or assess with every patient or do you bring that up or don't you? How do you approach that? Yes, absolutely. I just ask. And so, of course, there are some screening tools that exist, paper, pencil, uh, or written tools that exist, such as the ACE, the Adverse Childhood Event Score, or the TSI, the Trauma Severity Index. So there's these kind of written tools that that many people use in kind of a more treatment-focused setting. But for me, I'm really focused on just wanting to know whatever my patient is comfortable telling me so that I can provide the best healthcare. And so I say exactly that. I'll say, I want to ask some questions about things that you might have experienced that could be potentially traumatizing. And I want to know about those in a way so that I can provide you healthcare that feels safe and comfortable. I start usually in childhood and ask about childhood neglect and abuse. And it's really important to ask about neglect. I think we tend to pay more attention to histories of physical or sexual abuse, which are devastating, of course, for a child child in a person's development. But I think sometimes we miss more subtle but equally as important developmental traumas like neglect or attachment traumas that can be really helpful in understanding our relationship with our patient and how they work and how we can work best together. And then I specifically ask about past and ongoing intimate partner violence. There are many studies demonstrating the high correlation between intimate partner violence and substance use in women. And so I want to know about that either historically or if it's ongoing. And so that would be even more important for me to know if there was a partner or a person involved currently 
recently because we know that rates of physical and sexual abuse and emotion, you know, all kinds of ways of intimate partner violence do not decrease and sometimes increase in pregnancy. And so I want to be particularly alerted. And then I ask people to tell me about anything else that they think would be important for me to know that's happened to them that changes how they feel about coming to the doctor or getting health care. And then I want to also specifically ask, and I'll ask people if we can make an agreement about the way that they can communicate to me. And so sometimes, especially like, for example, doing a pep smear or a pelvic exam, I can't always see directly my patient's face or their eyes. And so I often will ask people, how do you do in general with people looking in your mouth or touching around your face or your neck, right? If I'm an exam on someone's thyroid gland on their neck, I want to know if they've had a history of strangulation or trauma that's involved their face or neck, right? And then I'll ask, how do you do with a physical exam where someone needs to touch you either with their hand or with a stethoscope to like listen to your heart or lungs. And most patients at this point are telling me, they're like, that's okay, it's okay. And then I'll ask, you know, have you ever had a pelvic exam or some kind of a pap smear or some kind of exam where you felt really uncomfortable? And sometimes people will say yes. And I'll say, were you able to communicate that to your doctor or your healthcare provider? And very infrequently have I had a patient who said, yeah, I said something. (laughs) Most of the time, my patients are telling me, no, I just was really uncomfortable. And so then I just never went back. And so we'll agree. Could you tell me verbally if I am doing a physical exam and you feel uncomfortable or scared? Could you tell me non-verbally? So sometimes I have patients hold something in their hand that they could lift up into the air to alert me if they were starting to feel distressed. So we'll agree ahead of time, you know, how would you communicate to me if you were starting to feel uncomfortable and just go from there so that even at the outset, before I'm touching someone physically, I have a way to look to make sure that they're still comfortable and present and not feeling traumatized. So how do you balance doing all of these wonderful assessments with short appointment times or busy schedules? I just run tragically over schedule. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Actually, that's kind of true. So yes, I just kind of run over time and I've accepted that about myself. I have the luxury of being able to schedule slightly longer appointments. So I have some flexibility. I can schedule half an hour appointments as opposed to a traditional, you know, 15 or 20 minute visit. And sometimes really it's worth putting in the time up front so that we can have shorter, more concise visits for follow-up. It's not always going to be this intensive, long visit, but if I put in the effort ahead of time, man, it sure seems like it pays off in helping not only retaining my patients in care and helping them come back, but also in really limiting the amount of time that we spend in future visits because we've had the opportunity to really go over things in some more detail up front. So I'm a little bit spoiled. I've been able to flex my schedule to have a little bit more time to spend with my patients for exactly that reason, that it is virtually impossible to cover all of the things. And I don't even get to all of the things that we're talking about in one visit. Really, that's part Part of my goal is creating an experience for my patient that will help them come back. So we have the opportunity to really touch on all these topics over time. So you talked about some things in pregnancy that people are working on to sort of help patients who've experienced trauma, like this intimate care. And you talked about the space that the exams are occurring in. Do you ever just not do some things or give the patient that decision to refuse certain exams? Absolutely. So healthcare really should be 
I don't want to say, I mean, it's a right to have healthcare, but it's also an option. So I would never attempt to force or coerce a patient into care that they didn't want. And so of Yes. Have I had patients who refused a pap smear? Yes, I have. Have I had patients who refused to let me examine some part of their body or wound or to look at their injection sites? Of course. And so I think for me, the most important thing is respecting that. And then, you know, if it really is some part of their care that's critical, hopefully we, over time, we can get to a point where they could feel more comfortable, more comfortable enough to participate in whatever that exam or that healthcare is that I'm recommending. But I think it's really important to be able to continue to work with patients, even when they don't accept our recommendations, or I want to put air quotes around comply, right? There's this idea in healthcare of the compliant or non-compliant patient. And to me, that just suggests that there's this expectation that my desires or wills for their care is more important than my patients. And it, and it just isn't. And so I want my patients to really have that autonomy. And when we were talking before about how do we build empowerment for people and draw out feelings of empowerment. I think that's one of them. And so when we ask people, you know, can we do for you today part of your routine prenatal care, which would include a pap smear, and people say no, then okay. But they can still be my patient. They don't have to be dismissed from practice. I can flex myself to adapt and accommodate what they're ready to participate in at that time. So this whole episode is... And talking with you has been wildly informative and you've had a lot of communication tips along the way. I'm just wondering, are there any other communication tips that you have for providers who do or may encounter a person who is pregnant and using drugs? I think the most important thing doesn't have to be even spoken, but can be really back to that creating a welcoming environment and doing what I think of as keeping the door open, right? So I am not suggesting that everyone needs to run out today and become an addiction medicine expert and (laughs) really take on the treatment. I do think we should all coordinate, right, with our local providers and local service agencies so that we know where to appropriately refer a patient. Should we come in contact? with a woman, a pregnant woman who's using substances. But I think the most important thing is keeping the door open and helping a person feel welcome to come back and not have the impression that her receipt of prenatal care is in some way contingent upon her being sober and that she could get prenatal care just like any other woman would, no matter where she's at on the continuum of use or readiness to change. Do you have any suggested resources for providers who may have a patient who's addicted to substances where they might get some more specialized care like the care you provide? Sure. So one of the best places to start would be on the SAMHSA website, and there's a treatment locator. And so you can look by zip code, you can click on your state on the map and be connected with treatment providers in your area. The other place that often is a good resource and varies by state, but is whatever the state's kind of office of behavioral health is, or whatever that corollary would be in different states, because often they not only have the most up-to-date information on licensed treatment centers and treatment providers, but there sometimes is state-level funding for treatment 
treatment that flows through state offices of behavioral health. And so from a national level, you know, a treatment locator on the SAMHSA website is definitely a place to start. But many states have also state level resource banks, but also funding streams that can be really helpful to know about. And then I'd suggest calling them. And so it feels kind of strange, but just like we would want to vet any kind of other, you know, if I was going to refer some patients to the new, let's say, physical therapy office in town, I might want to drive by and see what it looks like and maybe pop in and meet some of the providers, right? We want to know where we're referring our patients. And so it's really nice to not only know the contact information and physical location of where to refer patients for substance use treatment, but it can also be nice to meet some of the providers. And that takes effort, right? It takes a, that is a big lift and it takes a lot of effort, but it's worth its weight in gold in return because then you have a clear idea in your mind of who you would send your patient to and you know what kind of treatment they're likely to receive. Perfect. Well, we would both like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end? No, thank you. On behalf of myself and my very brave and beautiful patients, thank you to your listeners for their interest. And I'm just thrilled that there's enough interest and attention being paid to this very special population. And it's incredibly heartening for me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Did you know that you can get our show notes for every episode just by becoming a patron of our podcast? Check out our website to find out how you can become a patron and keep us recording at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Just click on the support us slash Patreon tab. Also on our website, you can send us your thoughts and let us know if you are interested in being on our podcast. Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and on Facebook. Oh.